Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Mutuality Matters, where Kim and I will explore the global impact of egalitarianism on human flourishing. Today, we are delighted to interview Dr. Beatrice Abambrega, a Swiss gynecologist that has dedicated 12 years of her life providing obstetric gynecological services to poor women in northern Bangladesh and training national doctors and midwives. One area she is especially passionate about is her work with fistula women, being involved in their treatment as well as their advocacy at a national level, all the way to surgical fistula repairs at Lamb Hospital in rural Bangladesh. Kim, would you like to help introduce Dr. Bia to our audience? Yes, Dr. Bia is a dear friend of mine that I met nearly two decades ago when we were both serving at Prem Sewa Hospital in North India. She was serving in the hospital while I served in the community. And in the evenings, after the work was done, we would spend long hours processing all we had seen, what we were learning, and reflecting on our various backgrounds. She also did the very important work of discipling me in the best ways to enjoy precious Swiss chocolate that was sent to us by our family and friends. We have kept track of each other over the years, and because of this podcast, I've had the joyous opportunity to talk with her over Zoom and reconnect. So I can't wait for you all to get to know her, hear her amazing stories, and let yourself experience both the heartbreak and the great hope displayed in the work she is doing. So, Bia, can you help the audience understand what led you to your vocation? How was God involved in that leading? Thank you so much, Kim and Vivi. <laughs> Very nice to, to be here in this round and have the chance to share. Uh, I would say it, it started... Although uh, India really had a very important part in that, I'm coming to that, it kind of started before that, even how I went into medical school. Um, after I had finished high school, I think you call that in the States, um, I went with OM, Operation Mobilization, to Dulos, a book ship, and worked there for eight months. And one thing I learned there that even though I went as a short-term missionary, that there was just lots of regular work to be done. We had just one ministry day of seven and five days we were putting books on shelves and selling books. <laughs> so it was one of the big lessons that God told me there is that whatever we do, we can do to his glory and that there is no difference for him if we are preaching the gospel or if we are serving him Amen. faithfully any other work. So there also I, I realized that God really wants me to study medicine and that's with the attitude that I joined college also, not going back from mission, but just moving into a new country, a new field, and that actually uh, my profession as a, as a doctor, that's, that's the mission that God has prepared for me. And along learning, lots of learnings through the studies also in this area of how, what it means to be a doctor after God's heart and to build his kingdom in that field. 
And then that going to India, I was there only for six months. Actually, it was something where I wanted to check out if God wants to use me um, overseas as a doctor. And God really did touch me, especially in this time, just seeing in front of my eyes what the high maternal mortality rates on statistic books, what it actually means. And just realizing that what I've seen in the West, uh, that this great experience of having a baby and nobody ever thinking that this could cost their lives like that. This is not the norm that actually most women in the world, they don't have this privilege. And it really arose that desire in me to somehow uh, contribute to that again in my life. And that's how, how I then, when I saw that an advert about a gynecologist uh, wanted in Bangladesh, that's how I then a couple years later came to that. Mm. Wow. I can have one story. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, share. So when, uh, when I, we were there in India, before leaving, I really wanted to see the Taj Mahal. And I went there all on my own as you didn't come along. <laughs> I think you were busy. <laughs> I'd probably seen it three times already. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this really touched my heart when I was reading that sign board where it said what it was for. I always thought this is the symbol of love and all this romance, kind of what we know about this uh, world wonders. Um, and there it said that it was a graveyard, a memorial for his third wife who died in childbirth of their, her 13th child. And it was just in front of my eyes, um, the same story that I had heard all over again while I worked in Northern India of how many times they get pregnant, how many life, how many dead children, and then how many women die. And this was from the 17th century, and it just totally blew my mind that not more had changed in this setting. And for me, ever since, this Taj Mahal is just a memorial for all the women that die and nobody even realizes or knows. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it makes me think how things have changed a lot in India since that time, but it's in the cities and not in the rural areas. And the rural areas still have the same story. So Dr. Bia, you spent the last 12 years treating women who suffer from fistula. This is a condition that we really don't hear much about in the West. I don't know a single woman in the West who has a fistula story. So maybe help our audience understand this rare condition, why it's rare in the West, but not so much in India. And you know what impact does it have on women? Yeah, I can start with telling you that the first fistula hospital in the world was built in the 19th century in New York. So from wow. the, we do know that it definitely was a problem in the US as well, but it's a while ago. That's fascinating. <clears throat> yeah, so to try to explain medically, um, it's kind of genius how we are created as women that a baby does go through the pelvis of the woman and come out during birth. But unfortunately, not all the babies fit through this pelvis or it just may take a long time and then the baby maybe wouldn't make it. So simply said, the classical fistula happens when the baby gets stuck. It doesn't go through as it should. Maybe it's 
too big or it's in the wrong position and just stays there for hours and days in the same position. And, and there is pressure on the bladder through the baby's head and the pelvic bone. And then the blood perfusion is in, impaired. Uh, there is an ischemia and then tissue dies. So after the baby comes out, if the mother even survives that, um, it will be dead but the, and the tissue will also be dead. So and then we have a hole left between the bladder and the vagina. And through this hole, then the urine is const constantly coming out. So I think that's an important point that these women actually are survivors of a catastrophe and many don't survive and then may die also. But those who survive then have to live with this incredible disability, uh, not only for themselves. We can't imagine what it means when urine just continuously runs out and wherever we sit or walk or lie, it's wet. But it also has incredible social implications because urine smells. Um, so many ladies, they, they call this disease green the hate disease, because they feel everybody hates them for their, for their smell and they keep distance, even within the families. Mm. Um, and another thing that's um, especially prominent in Muslim countries, like Bangladesh is a Muslim country, is that they are uh, considered impure. So they can't do their prayers, their regular prayers, because you have to wash and you, they can't wash because they just always are unclean. So, so that's then they're like social outcasts. Yeah. And also like a spiritual outcast in that sense. So even God cannot accept them anymore. Mm -hmm. To feel hated by one's community and God also must be a terrible burden. Wow. So are there certain women that are more vulnerable to fistulas or are there conditions that make women more vulnerable to this? Like you said, New York was the first place there was a fistula hospital and now we don't even hear of it here. Like what, mm -hmm. what makes women more vulnerable to this? It, it's, Complex, I would say. I mean, there's probably still lots of research to be done that there are differences also among different ethnicities. Um, like nowadays, most fistulas happen in Africa, but then South Asia also. But somehow not all countries where with low health care have the same incidences. But to overall still, the main reason is if there is no health care. Like, as I was saying, if the baby gets stuck, if it doesn't go through, then if you do a cesarean section at the right, right time, then the baby will be fine and the mom will be fine. So it's kind of all linked to that. And it is the same reasons that lead also to women still dying in childbirth is the reasons that lead to women getting fistula. And we are talking about the three delays. So the first one is taking the decision Second one is the travel and the third one is the healthcare. So for the decision, it has a lot to do uh, with the position and value of women. So if it's a young girl and they just got plenty of money for even marrying her in this dowry system, then maybe they don't want to spend money on taking her somewhere. Um, or so you mean taking her to medical care if she's pregnant, like prenatal care and delivery for a baby with some yeah. experts there. Even if, even if, they, they, if there's troubles, then to spend money to, to help her 
they may may not consider that. <clears throat> and then this is often also combined with cultural ideas also around delivery. So there will be a traditional helper. And then of course, all of the women in the house have delivered at home. So of course, she also has to manage this um, or ideas of how to how to improve the delivery outcome, but it may be actually harmful. So, so there's a lot in that area that is preventing them to even take the decision to take her for healthcare. Um, plus, of course, money itself, poverty is one of the big reasons also that then people wouldn't consider or feel they aren't able. And that's then also the same in the second delay, the whole traveling, that can also sometimes be the problem that they just don't have the money. Um, but it can also be purely distance, which maybe in the States you could imagine more than in other places. But um, in, in Africa especially, but also in Afghanistan, there is just no roads, there is no cars, no transport. So they have, if, if even they want to go to a hospital to deliver, they have, they have to walk three days. Or if there's a problem, they have to be carried for two days. And so, so it's just the dimensions that we can't imagine. The third delay, maybe I find the saddest that once they, that once they are there at the hospital, they might find that there is no trained staff, there is no materials, or they don't have the money to pay. There is only bad quality service. So that's maybe the saddest because there we, we just can't blame it on the families or the cultures or the poverty. So they arrive and the service itself is not good. Yes. Mm. So how do women understand this condition? Bea? Who do, where's the fault really in their minds? Uh, who's to blame? What do, can you say to us about their perception of the condition? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I just was talking about the three delays, but that's very much from our perspective, from the outside. Right. Um, and then it can really make you angry, like when you when you see, like even as an obstetrician, also when women come in too late, um, it's very rarely now that we will see fistulas happening because they don't come that late anymore. But they may come too late to save a baby's life, and and then we get so angry and think, like, why didn't you bring her? <laughs> Um, and even in this situation, we see that often their worldview is, is very different. Um, and it's very sad to say that, that still now, like the women with the fistula, they believe it's their own fault. Women with the dead baby, they believe it's their own fault. Um, even though they don't have any decision power in most of the families. Uh, but I think that's what they are told. And it's probably the case for most things that go wrong, that then they have to, to take the blame. Yeah, and and it's it's also to do with their different view of how things are connected and cost. Like if a if a woman, pregnant woman she really has to submit to her mother-in-law and she has to keep so many rules and regulations under which tree she shouldn't sit and what food to take, because otherwise there is all this spiritual <laughs> spirits or whatever other spiritual rules that then will bring a curse on her like in this maybe that's what we can understand best in the west so so it's it's a very different thinking in but still their feelings will be the same now huh? that they actually think it happened to them because they did something wrong so they think it's their fault and it could be because they didn't obey their mother-in-law well enough or a spirit is attacking them because they did something wrong or so they take the blame on themselves even though 
it's the outside causes and neglect of women that is yes. causing it. Yes, oh. you're saying that nicely. When I got to talk to you earlier, you said that when you first started, even doctors did not know that fistula was a problem in your community. But as you began treating fistula and word spread about what you were doing, patients started showing up at, at your hospital. So I was wondering if you could expand on why even the doctors in the communities did not see fistula patients and what was going on? Why did they not think it was a problem? Yeah, as I have described this disease, you can imagine that it's, it's very difficult for them to bear and also for the families to have such a person in their family. So, so they are either hiding their patient or even they, like mostly these women then go back to their parents and they are just taking them again. But it's, it's a shameful thing. It's a shame that she didn't manage to have a live baby. It's a shame that she has this disease. So they are hidden. And they don't believe that there is treatment or some go, there are some who went, tried for treatment, but actually most, I would say they, they never even went somewhere because they didn't know it's a disease or that there is a treatment. And many who come to us, they are very surprised, especially when we have fistula camps, operation camps, where several are coming at the same time, then they are really surprised to see that they aren't the only ones, but that it's a problem that so many suffer as well. So, so basically, they're really isolated from each other and from community. And so doctors don't even know they exist. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's a great comfort for them to see other women who have suffered the same problem and that they're not isolated and as alone as they imagine. Uh, yeah. Bia, in your reading of scripture, can you... Um, how does your faith intersect with this working with these women? How are you informed by your faith? What is, what is Christ saying to you as you work with these women day in and day out? I think overall, not only with these women, the Bible has come so much more alive living in a society that is much more similar to the first century um, world than where we are in in the West. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so many stories suddenly come actual real, like beggars sitting on the side of the road or things like that. So I can, right. and the crowds and so many things we can only imagine um, or imagine so much better. I don't know sometimes how much it's really the same, but definitely more similar. Yeah. And so one story that comes very near to, to the story of a Fistla woman is this, is the woman with the bleeding. Um, who comes to Jesus. Um, maybe one difference is that probably not everybody knew or saw that she has this disease. But other than that, I think it's, it's very similar because also in Judaism, this bleeding meant she, that she was unclean. She wasn't allowed to the temple. She wasn't supposed to touch anybody because it would make them unclean. So, so this dimension that for us in the West is quite hard to grasp how, how difficult that is to be... Uh, socially outcast somehow and not be able to be part of the community. So I find it very revolutionary that she came actually to this gathering and just sneaked in there and, 
and she wanted to touch Jesus and she was convinced that this touch will, will, um, will heal her. And then this power in Jesus calling her daughter, like this yes. is the really absolute contrast to being even excluded from a family. You know, if if yes. he calls her daughter and, and touches her. Mm. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's belonging. And, and another dimension, I also just, just thinking again about the story, it's, it's very crazy that Jesus, the big rabbi, like the, the ruler of the synagogue, he caught him, of course, always the big people, they are most important, and all the small people just go along and try to pick a side. And, and then Jesus really lets this guy, like, wait for talking to this woman. So I think that's also just showing so much how Jesus was totally countercultural. Not just any woman, but this woman, and who, who definitely did something that she wasn't supposed to do according to their religious rules and social norms. So he just showed her healing and love. And, and, and attention, attentiveness. Mm, and to see her. Like he saw, he wanted to see her. He didn't want her to just sneak out. He wanted to see her. Yeah. Yeah, when the disciples were saying, oh my gosh, Jesus, there's a crowd here. Who, who knows who touched you? He, he's like, no, I want to know. I know someone touched me. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a God who sees. Wow. It's very powerful. Mm. Yeah. So then I wonder, so that story and you think of these fistula patients and how amazing it is when they are healed. When when women are, experience healing at Lamb, what is their reaction? Mm. Yeah, they become missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there is any any more motivated people in the world than those cured fistula. They just want to go and tell everybody that that they had been cured and they want all the families to know that they shouldn't do what happened to them and and uh, so that others don't experience that and anybody still living with this horrible disease could be cured so not everybody i we we realize but it's really for many patients this is a reaction that they just very strongly are passionate about this and we have um, also started to do a trainings like a one week training as uh, we call them community fistula advocates where they get some primary healthcare basic training and they get a bag with our logo. So they are kind of um, our staff, even though they, they aren't paid, they are fully volunteer, but then they go in their village and they talk to other women and just share their stories. Um, and this is, this is really amazing to see. Um, they also achieve a lot, I think, but just seeing the changes in them where they come from, just being this personification of despair and just this misery breaking our hearts. And then when they go out and get this confidence also to talk, um, like one example that these women, they never have been anywhere. Of course, they, they were just sitting at home. They never learned to travel. So usually that's also one reason they don't come to our hospital. Then somebody maybe brings them, but mm -hmm. then later they, they would travel on their own, many which travel on their own and take along others, um, which, yeah, which, amazing. which women, women can do, but it's not really them, <laughs> the poorest who would do that. They get the right. money, they take the bus, they go there.
or if if uh, some some who are still married their husbands don't like that so much <laughs> one was just so funny she was sharing like i can't go anywhere my husband doesn't let me go but whenever there's a wedding whenever there's a funeral whenever there's a child born i'll just share my story so <laughs> <laughs> so she found uh, every excuse she could <laughs> yeah and yeah, so that's what I tell also them. I try to encourage them. Like if I would go to the village and tell them they shouldn't marry off their daughters so young and they have to go to hospital in time, then they would just think it's this crazy foreigner. But if they go and tell their story, it's just uh, very different and people really listen. This parallels with the um, Samaritan woman at the well just amazingly well. Yeah, Can you sweet. talk about those parallels? Yeah, what, one thing that, that um, I think really stands out is how the woman at the well was also actually not well respected, but she just couldn't lose anything. Like yeah. she was out of society anytime and it was just overwhelming the good news. She just had to spread it against all odds and even to people maybe who have not liked her before. So I think sometimes for these Fistler women, um, I guess there is not many people who knew them before, maybe some, but just this, this thing of not being part in the society as much and not being under those many restrictions. So they, they can just do whatever because anyway, they, are, they, they are, have, have lost everything already, maybe. Um, so they are just feeling this urge to go and they do it mm. and just become, re okay, become really courageous and, and move out. So where the Samaritan woman was there in the middle of the day because she had, well, she was with her fifth man. And so she was outcast from society. That's just like these women. And then Jesus does this long theological talk with her. I think the longest recorded in scripture. And she mm. goes back to her village while the men are in town getting things ready for dinner. And she evangelizes the entire village. She's the first evangelist. Yeah. It's like this yeah. woman saying, okay, now we want you to lead our political party. We don't have a party, but we want you to lead it. <laughs> <laughs> you really just can't dream that up. That's great. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, I remember reading or hearing somewhere that only about 80% of the surgical repairs for fistula are successful. And 20% of the remaining people uh, just uh, there's just too many complications. Is that, is that correct? And tell us about that. And, you know, your deep stories uh, around the healing these women experience who are healed, especially um, even when they aren't healed, you know, there's this sense of they are being treated by people who are trying to make a difference. Can you talk about, the process of healing for those who do find success and even for those who don't? Um, I mean, the 80% is an average number. It, of course, depends very much on what kind of fistula. There are many different types of fistula and sizes and degrees. Um, but, and this is actually per operation. I, I wouldn't know really overall, but it is a fact that not all can be cured. Some can not even get one surgery because it's just too much is destroyed of their tissue. Um, and others, they have a nearly 100% chance we can give them. 
Yeah, but it's very, very hard, actually. After the surgery, they, they are staying there for mostly for two weeks, up to three weeks on a, on a bladder catheter. And then only after this comes out, it kind of shows if, if they are cured or not. So it's a very intense time also that we are with them waiting and always this, this incredible feeling of lying in a dry bed after decades sometimes. Um, but then still this fear always, will it, will it last or will I be among those who, who actually get cured? Um, so there's a lot of processing happening then also and some different ways that how, how they are handling it. And then if, if actually they start leaking again or it, it didn't work out in the first place, that's, that's really hard for all, for all to grasp because the joy is so incredible, but then the despair is also so incredible. So many can come back for, for another repair, but others, um, we don't know what else we could offer. So I was very much um, struggling with this in the beginning. Like, like, how can we tell them there's nothing we can do for you? That, that can't be true. Mm -hmm. So there are some, some other type of surgeries to help them to get dry. Like, and we have started to do, they are called diversions, like, like with patients who have bladder cancer, where you remove the bladder and then put, put the urine into a, an external bag. So sometimes mm -hmm. we're doing these surgeries, but then not everybody wants that. And some, for some also, it doesn't work. So, so I, for us, it's really hard, this feeling of, of failure and total helplessness. Uh, but I have been touched by at least some of them, like how, how they are. Some are just fine. I'll, I've done it before and I'm continuing. And it's hard to imagine um, how they can just accept that. And, and for others, it is a struggle, but they still, still has changed something in their life by being by being there, by seeing others and by being seen, maybe. Yeah, mm. and just experience this, some touch and acceptance, um, even with this disease. Probably I can't quite, we can't quite grasp because for us it's very normal when they come and how we treat them. But, but when we imagine their life before and what it meant, I think it is, it's a bit big for them. So just the fact that you saw them and they were touched by you and there was a desire for their healing almost changes who they are because they haven't been seen and they've been ostracized. So it, it gives them a, a sense of dignity. Is that kind of what you're saying? Maybe I'm, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think sometimes that's what, what I feel. We, we are trying also um, to, to help them, like for any of the women, we are offering also some uh, income generating trainings or rehabilitation programs. And um, that's something I like to really, I'm pushing that this happens more that especially those women who don't get dry, that they get help. Um, and the classical um, type of help that they are asking for is a cow, because that's something that is very easy to work on also in, uh, with this with this disease so so we really want actually we're studying the effect of that like we have been studying <clears throat> how their quality of life improves with the treatment um but now we have done that also for women who, who have the same disease but they have a cow <laughs> like does that actually change something in their quality of life so i'm that would be fascinating to see the results of that 
Yeah, we ha I don't have it yet. I'm quite convinced that it will make a difference in the way I see them afterwards. But, but um, yeah, I really hope that we can promote that also. Uh, because in many countries, the focus is just on treating all the women, which is very good. But then non-medical people often don't get that. Actually, it's not enough just to treat everybody because some can't be treated. Uh, they still need support to change their lives. So right. it's one way. Yeah. I'm reminded just listening to you. Um, I remember watching Beatrice 20 years ago at the hospital in Prem Sewa, and she would touch all the patients, which, um, you know, culture often absorbs caste and things, even when they don't realize they're absorbing it. And when she would touch all the patients, the doctors and nurses started noticing it. And the patients noticed it and it changed the whole tone of the hospital. They all started touching the patients and providing um, just this compassionate look at them as creations of God, you know, made in the image of God with dignity. Um, so I imagine that the touch of your staff at Lamb Hospital, even if they're not healed, really does change how they see themselves. Yeah, that, that story actually came, just only told me recently about this touch. And I would like to just comment on that to encourage also people who are listening that it's, it can be so amazing that God is using you through things you don't even realize. I, I never did that intentionally. I think it was very much also my helplessness as I didn't know language and it was very hard to bear the suffering. So it was just some urge or you can say that the spirit did that in me, but it wasn't any clever thought or any tactic or strategy or anything. But, and I never knew that this actually happened. So, so sometimes just by being where we are, even in our helplessness, like God can use that and and even change so i think that's really amazing i'm just getting tears thinking about that so many people in our world even daily life we can touch and just say i'm here i see you mm -hmm. mm. well beatrice we're gonna have to close this off because it's been a good long interview but it has just been such a joy to yes. interview you yes and and to hear of all the work that you have been involved in over the years and your hopes and dreams of taking it forward. I haven't, hadn't heard those when I talked to you earlier. So that's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm just struck by the fact that Jesus is good news for women, which in turn turns out to be good news for the whole community. One woman is seen, she's treated, she's healed, and she brings in all these other women, and then she's going to be elected, maybe, for the political <laughs> party. It's amazing. This is Jesus at work. Yes, it is. The Samaritan woman runs for office. <laughs> she is known as the first evangelist in, in many churches. <laughs> yeah. Beatrice and her work, you've been highlighted. Through an excellent Al Jazeera article documentary that discusses the impact of child marriages in Bangladesh and the de devastating physical toll it can take, especially in young girls' bodies. Um, the link to that documentary will be available to all of our listeners in our show notes. And the show notes 
also contains a short video where Dr. Beatrice explains the conditions of fistula using a wonderful model, which I watched, enjoyed every minute, and learned a great deal, and how surgeons are working to bring healing to these women around the world. So if you'd like to follow Dr. Beatrice or Lamb Hospital or know more about her work, please refer to the show notes uh, for that opportunity. And thank you so much for being with us and for hearing stories I'm not sure you would hear anywhere else. Join us next month as Mutuality Matters explores the global impact of egalitarianism on women's lives around the world. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.